Welcome to BIV Today. We are the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. And a little later on today, we're speaking to Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com, talking all about what cannabis legalization means for the retail sector. More specifically, we're going to chat about why it is that BC will only have one legal outlet up and running next month. But first, we're speaking to Dan Sutton. He's a legal cannabis producer, and he's also the CEO of Tenless Labs. He joins us to talk about why he's opening up his company's greenhouse facility to the public by using technology. That's now. Joining us today to talk about the growing intersection between cannabis and technology and maybe how those two can be combined for further outreach, it is Dan Sutton. He's the CEO of Tanless Labs. Dan, it's been a few weeks since we had you back on the show. Busy, busy time for everybody involved. Great to have you back. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. So since we last spoke, you guys are now offering, I guess, like virtual tours of sorts of your own greenhouse facilities. What's the idea behind this? How exactly does it work as well? So I think the number one question that we get from prospective clients or investors, stakeholders, just people that are interested in Tanless Labs is, can I come for a site tour? And the reason is uh, these new generation of purpose-built cannabis production facilities with elite quality assurance standards, excellent uh, security loadouts, and and a variety of unique infrastructure are really interesting. It's a far cry from the kind of classical interpretation of what a grow-op is or has been over the last 30 years. And so we wanted to open an ability for uh, our users or just interested cannabis curious folks to be able to come tour our facility in the interest of transparency, show them what the insides of uh, an elite cannabis production infrastructure actually looks like and, and demonstrate in our case why we believe greenhouses really are the answer to the future of the cannabis industry. So how, how does it feel when you're using this? I mean, is it kind of like using, say, Google Street View to a certain degree? What, what's the experience that somebody's going to have using this? If you're using it on a desktop computer, it very much is like a Google Street View. You can walk through the entrance of our facility, uh, you know, click around and, and walk through our, our various pieces of infrastructure and see the cannabis actually growing in the greenhouse bays. Now, if you really want to go up a level, you can actually use virtual reality goggles uh-huh. and, uh, and look around inside the greenhouse as if you were standing in there. Well, I I cover the tech beat here at the newspaper, so I'm also curious about just kind of the nitty-gritty of it. Like, what was it like for you guys bringing in the equipment, making arrangements? How was that just, I guess, on a minutiae sort of level? Uh, We used some really cool technology that we we borrowed from some consultants that are 360-degree cameras and basically just set them up at various vantage points throughout the facility so that we could get uh, full coverage for all the areas that are, are, are of the most interest. So have you guys heard feedback yet from people that are kind of newbies to this, people that aren't really familiar with maybe how a greenhouse facility would operate versus the other facilities that are here in Canada? Yeah, I think there's been overwhelming excitement. We've seen a huge amount of, of traffic through that offering and then uh, a variety of different media sources being really interested in, in being able to look transparently at the inside of a cannabis cultivation facility, in some cases for the first time in history. Uh, and and certainly the, the visual imagery is very different than what you might think of in a, in a sort of dark, dimly lit, uh, low ceilinged grow up type of infrastructure. When you go into our virtual tour, you're going to see a, a greenhouse with 24 foot ceilings, you know, massive amounts of natural light. Our, our plants are substantially larger, greener, healthier than they would be in an indoor environment. And uh, I think it, it 
paints a more transparent picture and a, and a really unveils the, the future of cannabis cultivation. Well, you know, you bring up like kind of interesting imagery here because I think a lot of people associate a quote unquote grow off with, you know, maybe what they would see on like, I don't know, uh, cop photos or, or the evening news, which is like you said, that those dark low ceilings sort of maybe fluorescence hanging around them. How much do you think this could really change perspectives that people have on this industry as we come closer and closer to legalization date. It's becoming more and more, uh, of course, with regards to recreational. It's already you know legal with regards to medical. But how important is it for the average person to, I guess, revisualize how this industry is actually going to operate? In the advent of, of this nascent and legalized business, which albeit is highly regulated, we're still seeing and aspire to a greater intersection between technical agriculture, a sector that we have huge expertise in here in British Columbia, some of the best tomatoes, green peppers, even bedding plants uh, in Canada are grown in this in this region, in the, in the Fraser Valley and in southern Vancouver Island. And so we, we really believe that that expertise has so much to teach the cannabis industry. We've got this in, incredibly deep talent base in the cannabis business, albeit the unregulated cannabis business in British Columbia that we've built up, you know, arguably over the last 50 years. And now is the time for those two schools to come together and to teach each other. And I think to physically manifest that in the imagery of the infrastructure is a really cool opportunity. It'll recontextualize people's vision of what the future of this industry will look like. And it will look like technical greenhouses that are highly controlled, effectively secured, and ultimately cultivating the plants under the power of sunlight. This is a leafy green plant, and that is the environment in which it thrives the most effectively. Well, then how important was this, I guess, exercise for you just with reconfirming the brand that you guys want to have out there? Because of course, you guys are a greenhouse uh, facility here. That's really what you guys are going to be marketing hard as versus some of the other you know, production facilities. So is this kind of important that you're showcasing what exactly it is that you guys do and what you guys look like? I think Tantalus Labs, I'm proud that Tantalus Labs has has always been probably erring on the side of transparency. There are other companies in the space that believe that they have really significant IP, that that IP is going to be intellectual property, is going to be hugely valuable for them. And as a result, they, they sort of build a wall around their marketing messaging. They talk just in very broad sweeping generalities, and they don't actually invite people into the core ethos of why they do their business. And for us, the acceleration and proliferation of greenhouse technology is a core mandate for Tantalus Labs. We don't want to be the only people using greenhouses to cultivate cannabis. We want to demonstrate that the best cannabis on earth, and certainly the cleanest cannabis on earth, is going to come from greenhouses uh, over the course of the next 20 years. And so, that brand message, I think, boils down to transparency. If we want to be transparent, if we want to stand behind a message of transparency, uh, which is a little bit punny, both in a, in a literal sense of transparency, but then also in, in a, an ethical sense of transparency, we need to show people that we're not afraid of bringing them into our environment, you know, showing them the entire production system and, uh, and, and hoping that, you know, maybe some of the aspiring entrepreneurs that are looking at that website uh, are motivated to then build in infrastructure that mirrors our own. You know, I, I'm a little slow at times and it took me just a beat to get the transparency pun, but I, I, I do appreciate that. But you also brought up the M word uh, marketing here, and it's going to be a very tricky situation for companies with regards to the limits that the government ha is imposing on everybody involved here. You're using technology as one of the avenues here. How important is being clever without, 
I guess, scrutiny rules going to be? And, and how does technology really play a vital role in that going forward with regards to getting your brand out there? So we are st- starting to see a little more clarity from our regulators. There was actually a, a prohibitions on promotions conference call that Health Canada hosted last week that myself and my creative director participated in. And they are really adamant that any kind of marketing that positions a cannabis product with an emotional reaction, either negative or positive, you know, that validates glamour or sexiness or vitality or adventure. These are things that they really want to avoid because it, it attracts, in theory, at-risk audiences. Now, what, what Health Canada is allowing us to do and what I think is actually a really positive move for the industry and plays well to producers like Tantalus Labs is talk about production style, talk about locality, talk about quality assurance systems and factual information about the product and uh, and its characteristics. And so what this really boils down to for Tantalus Labs is that we are, are more and more engaged and, and invested in product-first branding. It's not as much about the packaging, the colors, the sexiness, the appeal, as it is about what's inside that, pro- that bag, uh, inside that box, inside that packaging system. And so for us, you know, we believe that pesticide-free cannabis that's validated with lab testing, sun-grown in the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, that is a very strong brand message. That's a strong marketing message that uh, underpins who we are. And that's a story that we can tell uh, and fully be compliant with the uh, the sweeping but ultimately probably pretty logical uh marketing restrictions that Health Canada has put on this nascent industry. Well, I am curious about these conversations that you get to have with Health Canada, for example, especially with regards to the clarity that you get around marketing. Um, look, if somebody goes and visits your website, are you getting the message that you can't have like the, this glitzy sort of like people wearing sunglasses, like how fun this product is sort of deal? Like as long as you're sharing the salient facts, you're showing, say, a tour of your facility. You're not really going to run into too much trouble with regulators. That's our understanding. And I think the regulations as they've been defined are, as any regulations are, interpretive. And there may be a push and pull here. Health Canada has suggested that if companies run afoul of these marketing restrictions, the first foray uh, into remediation will be you know, warning letters and, and discussion more so than just license suspension or revocation. However, those are tools that Health Canada does have to be able to uh, to to force remediation on companies that are you know, remaining to be non-compliant. So Talos Labs has always believed that a story about minimalism, a story about, you know, visual cues to our, our natural and local production environment here in British Columbia are really important tools in our marketing strategy. Uh, but it's yet to be seen if, if anything that we're doing uh, is going to be non-compliant. And I think that that will continue to evolve over time. We're just really happy to have a transparent relationship with our regulators so that when they do provide us further clarity, we can adapt to that new information. Have you noticed if maybe any competitors out there are, are maybe kind of pushing up against the rules to a certain degree? I, I You don't have to name names. You're welcome to. But I am curious if you've been, I don't know, rubbing your chin at some of the stuff that you've been seeing uh, people get away with so far. I think in, in any new business, and especially a highly regulated business, you're going to get people that, that test the limits. And certainly uh, the majority of, of large LPs are are 
taking uh, pretty massive liberties with what they interpret as being on side in the regulations. I think a lot of the marketing activities that we've seen over the last, over the course of the summer, uh, you know, things like activation at public events or uh, in information booths at concerts that are not age restricted. These are not going to continue into recreational legalization. We're going, we're going to see uh, those attempts to push the envelope uh, receive slaps on the wrist. But it will be interesting to see how uh, other firms adapt and moreover to see if Health Canada actually has teeth. Are they going to issue warning letters and continue to issue warning letters or are we actually going to see license suspensions in the eventuality that offside marketing continues to persist? Yeah, because that's I think one of the big questions that I had is, is how much teeth Health Canada is going to really have in this game here. Um, I just think it's going to have to take like one big you know, like uh, issue to come up before we really find out in maybe, maybe a few weeks, a few months down the road. The Office of Medical Cannabis currently, which which will become the, the regulatory body that oversees the broader recreational cannabis regime, is full of incredibly intelligent people. Yeah. These are not people that are going to let companies get away with skirting the rules and being cute, cute with regulations. They have a huge vested interest in being a global resource for other governments to come and look at. Uh, an excellent quality assurance system, a reasonable set of marketing parameters, and an excellent security paradigm. I understand that our federal government is getting inbound requests for information on a weekly basis from various other countries and jurisdictions around the world that are looking to legalize cannabis, uh, whether it be for a recreational or a medical model. And so I think from a global political perspective, there's a huge amount of vested interest in that office in remaining politically saleable. So I think you're you're going to see a lot of action from Health Canada and Health Canada is going to be uh, very defensive about the potential for companies to take marketing liberties. Uh, and I think that that is ultimately, despite the fact that I'd, I'd love to be more liberal in, in our marketing strategies, I think from a, from a purely industry-focused perspective, uh, that's really important to the ongoing health and public health and safety outcomes uh, of this industry. And I'm proud to work with a regulator that's so committed to those outcomes. Lastly, I do recall back before my journalism days about a decade ago, I was working for a large tech company and you weren't allowed to bring a camera in and take photos of your workplace. There's a lot of proprietary information that could be on, say, your computer monitors. Any of those concerns that you had bringing in cameras to your own place of business? I, I think we really err, err on the side of the notion that if you can take a photo of our infrastructure and then replicate it, then we've done something wrong. Ultimately, the concept of the way we've designed the greenhouse or e even all the way to our security infrastructure, which is probably our most sensitive IP and our, our most sensitive infrastructure, if, if someone can use imagery to then infiltrate our security paradigm, we've, we've made a mistake. And so I think it's all in the execution. Let's show people what we're doing. And if they get inspired to go emulate our strategy and, and build a greenhouse of similar caliber, power to them. I've been in this business uh, six years and I know that survival is victory. Excellent. Well, Dan, always appreciate the time you give us. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Stay with us. We're going to talk a little bit more about the cannabis industry with retail insiders Craig Patterson. He's going to talk a little bit about why we're only going to have one retail brick-and-mortar shop up and running in British Columbia come October. Mm -hmm. 
with us today to talk about the biggest news in retail. It is Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of RetailInsider.com. Craig, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So over this past weekend, BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, he confirmed that the province is only going to have exactly one brick-and-mortar cannabis retail shop operating on legalization date next month. We know it's going to be the one in Kamloops, um, which is a, a relatively small market compared to many other parts of British Columbia. For you, I don't know, if you look at the landscape and how it's unfolding at this point, is it any surprise that BC is only going to have one legal recreational pot shop up and running? Oh, it's a tough time because you've got these deadlines and you've got delays. And, uh, you know, it looks a bit funny. You know, I think British Columbia is known for being kind of a marijuana capital, and yet it's one of the provinces that's going to be the furthest behind once legalization actually takes hold. So, um, I, don't, I don't even know what to say to it. It's kind of disappointing, but I think that things will get up and running. I think it's important to do this correctly. And I don't know, maybe October 17th is too soon. Uh, very few uh, provinces are <laughs> able to figure out what they're doing right now. Well, you're in Toronto right now, and I know that there's just uh, recently a provincial election, and the new premier, Doug Ford, he came out and said, you know what, uh, this is not really going to work for us. We'll have e-commerce available, but uh, we really want the private sector to take hold of this and we're just going to be putting it off into the spring do you think that was just kind of a smart move instead of trying to like push it out before it's actually ready um i think so i mean i wouldn't want to say much of what uh, doug ford is doing right now is intelligent but because certainly there are other things that are happening that aren't great but in this case i i think that you know having the private sector involved probably isn't a bad thing Uh, i think it gives small businesses an opportunity. But, you know, in terms of timing and uh, deadlines, you know, that is, I think, a huge concern. I mean, I'm sure British Columbia is going to come around, but uh, Ontario is interesting. It was going to be run by the government agency, which runs, you know, liquor operations. And, uh, you know, Doug Ford has come in and has uh, changed that on his head. And perhaps it's actually not a bad decision. Uh, Having small retailers involved, I think, you know, really will actually be good, you know, for the economy in terms of having small business owners, uh, you know, involved in a growing business as opposed to a government monopoly. I do think I support it. However, I think it was quite disruptive in terms of uh, a lot of movement was on the way. A lot of leases were being signed for these government liquor stores. And I don't know quite, or liquor stores, well, same thing, cannabis stores. But, right, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I think eventually we'll find out that there were some financial losses, uh, some leases that uh, may not have been executed. I don't even know, but uh, it sounds like, you know, <laughs> there could be some fallout here, but he'll just use the notwithstanding clause for something. So there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it's just a guessing game right now, but do you have any idea how much traction e-commerce is going to get when October 17th comes? Probably gigantic. If people want to order marijuana and if they can't get it from their local dispensaries and uh, throughout Ontario, kind of like Vancouver, you know, there's been dispensaries operating, operating illegally. I, I think that's I think they're legal anyway. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure they are. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, if people are wishing, willing to make these purchases, uh, you know, and aren't going to go the illegal route, which I think is an issue. Uh, you know, p- yeah, e-commerce is going to be huge or people are going to do it illegally. I think there's going to be a mix of both. I also question what the quality of the uh, the government bud will be. I don't know. I mean, we're hearing that perhaps it'll be watered down, and perhaps that's the wrong term, but it'll be weaker perhaps than you get elsewhere. It remains to be seen. I think that the illegal market's still going to be uh, a big part of things, at least for another 12 months. 
Yeah, I, I have a lot of question marks hanging over this with regards to just the black market persisting. And I, I think it's, I personally think it's going to go beyond a year, but uh, we'll keep che- checking in with you with regards to how retailers are dealing with this legalization, Craig. One of the other things that we're following, though, is that Cineplex has just announced it's launching a partnership with Seattle-based VR Studios. I don't know if that's the most original name for uh, what they do, but uh, they're going to install 30 to 40 VR, virtual reality installations across Canada. And look, I I go to the movies. I I see a lot more food offerings, a lot more alcohol offerings. It seems as if they want reasons for you to stick around and and spend money at the movie theater. Do you think that VR is going to be, I guess, the technology that's going to hook people in? Yes, I think it's one of them. Um, I think that Cineplex is on the cutting edge in a lot of respects of uh, uh, even, strangely enough, the future of retail. Uh, Cineplex is... uh, you know, an entertainment company and is creating uh, places where people go to be entertained. And I actually see quite a parallel to that in retail. I think there's going to be a real merger. I mean, I'm not just talking about Cineplex operating within shopping centers, be it the rec room or their own theaters or whatever else they might, you know, have up their sleeve. I think that, uh, you know, the, the future of physical space is something which, you know, people will either be, you know, Instagramming or, you know, they'll be enjoying and experiencing and, you know, often food and beverage is going to be involved there. And I think that, uh, you know, Cineplex really is getting in on the experience game. And I think that really is the name of the game. I think moving forward uh, for anyone that's doing anything within the physical space anyways, not online. Yeah, you know, it's such a weird thing going on in society right now because you have a lot of folks happy to stay home, watch Netflix. But then I honestly think that people do actually want to get an excuse to just get outside. And look, movie tickets, if you want to go to a big blockbuster opening weekend, it's going to cost you like 18, 19 bucks at this point. I just wonder if they kind of diversify what they're actually offering at the movie theaters. You're giving people and perhaps people that don't have to have, you know, I don't know, huge babysitter bills when they get home. But you're giving people more of an excuse to get out and really take in like a, a wide reaching experience. And I think that's key. Uh, I mean, even strange things like in downtown Vancouver, you know, it's uh, Acker's Alley. I think that's how you pronounce it opened. And it's very much it's behind the Orpheum Theater. It's this like experiential alleyway that they've taken and made into this sort of psychedelic uh, you know installation experience where they hold pop-up discos and you know they also got that pink alley up around um in behind hastings between hastings tender and south granville and again i mean these are just examples people are going in there and doing instagram photos and you know uh, kind of enjoying their time uh, people i think are actually seeking out experiences so with what cineplex is doing i think it's bang on they're creating another um you know element of fun that uh, will draw people in and i think continue to bring traffic in Uh, at a time when, you know, Netflix is becoming more and more popular. The other thing that I I think if we're talking about physical spaces, one of the big stories that you're certainly following over the summer is just a number of violent incidents at malls in greater Toronto and Vancouver. We've actually seen our own share of shootings in these very public places. uh, And I I just want to emphasize that I don't think Vancouver is immune to what was happening this past summer in Toronto Tell me a little bit, I mean, how are these locations kind of grappling with this? And are are people, I don't know, uh, behaving any differently with regards to their shopping habits? Is this having an impact on a lot of these locations too? Uh, I think, you know, it's tricky. I don't think that most people are really changing their patterns based on uh, what happens one time in an isolated incident like that. But I think it does register in the psyche. I mean, anytime, you know, you hear something like shooting in Yorkdale, I think, People will perhaps second guess uh, going there, and, and and I think that you know perhaps that's misguided. I mean, it just happens that Yorkdale's a busy mall, and this is one of a few examples. And uh, because it most recently had a, a pretty high-profile shooting that was reported around the world, 
Um, but, you know, anytime that uh, there's a perception of a lack of safety, I think that that is a concern. And I think in the case of uh, shopping center landlords, you know, they're going to have to come up with a PR response and say, you know, this is not an unsafe place to be. You know, I've been to Yorkdale many, many times and I've never felt unsafe ever, I don't think, other than perhaps my pocketbook <laughs> being sure, yeah. accidentally, you know, spending money. But, uh, you know, physically, I've never uh, had any issues. So, I, but nevertheless, you know, if you look at how consumers behave, you know, there is a segment of the population that, you know, I think is inherently a bit paranoid and probably would avoid them all based on this. But I don't think personally it's an issue. I, I just don't see malls turning into airport security lines at, at any point. So I, I just wonder if there's really much that these places can do to grapple with these issues other than making sure that they have plans in place if something happens in which they can respond as quickly as possible. Yeah, and then it's interesting. Looking at American malls is probably a good example. And I know that in uh, suburban Baltimore, I think it was Owing Mills, which at one time had a Saks Avenue store. And um, I mean, this is a this is a, a bit of a sad example. So what happened to Owing Mills is, you know, they, <laughs> I mean, this, again, I, I hate saying this, they put in public transit. And, uh, you know, from the downtown core where there were some poor neighborhoods. So they went from, I guess, I don't know if the term ghetto is, is PC, but they, you know, transit was basically connecting the two. And they said that crime spiked in this uh, shopping center. And uh, it's now almost empty, you know, in terms of it uh, uh, has basically suffered. People wouldn't shop there anymore. And uh, I think inherently wealthy people can be quite paranoid. They're concerned, uh, you know, about their own safety, be it kidnapping or, you know, when you're worth a lot of money, you know, <laughs> your life... Uh, becomes worth more, you know, in some respects, you know, certainly with one's own psyche and, uh, you know, people are less willing to do things that are unsafe. And especially that includes the mall, even a luxury mall, people are saying, oh my God, there's crime happening, you know, and there's undesirables and whatever people might want to say. I think that that, uh, you know, can be a huge issue to the point that it can kill a mall altogether. And we haven't seen that in Canada, at least not yet. Yeah, a very concerning issue that uh, we'll continue to monitor. But, uh, Craig, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of RetailInsider.com, and you're listening to BIV Today. That's it for today's show. I want to thank everyone for listening. You can find more of our stories online at BIV.com. We'll talk to you next time. 